0: then you are probably at a lower level of intellectual and spiritual and psychological development.
1: That's Michael Lerner, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyang. This edition of AR features Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics, and the Left, part two of a special two-part program. These are times of deceit, rage, and fear, Well, you might say, it's always been like that. But it seems the intensity of this moment is more acute. The coarseness of discourse is sharper. The rancor is deeper. Maybe the pervasiveness of social media accounts for some of it. How can we navigate the treacherous currents that are running through our politics, and by extension, into our personal lives? What is the intersection of faith, politics, and the left? Is it possible to reach out to those who espouse views that are diametrically opposed to ours? How to do that? Rabbi Michael Lerner says many on the left are too quick to dismiss people who are religious. To reach people you disagree with, he says, you can't be condescending and arrogant. Rabbi Michael Lerner is the editor of Tikkun Magazine. He's a leading voice for peace, justice, and spiritual renewal. He's the recipient of Morehouse College's King Gandhi Award for his work for peace and nonviolence. He's the author of Jewish Renewal, The Left Hand of God, and Revolutionary Love. I talked with him in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, in mid-January 2020. Welcome to the program.
0: Glad to be with you, David.
1: I'm sure very familiar with this uh, quote from Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. When and how and under what circumstances can small groups of people change the world? Um,
0: All through history, but uh, most particularly in my lifetime, that happened with first with the struggle against apartheid in South Africa and uh, against segregation in the United States, in which a small group of people originally started to stand up against uh, segregation. When MLK started to move in that direction, inspired in in part by others who had spontaneously moved in that direction, he was surrounded by all kinds of leadership in the African-American community telling him, it's impossible. It's way beyond what is actually going to happen in America. Why don't you narrow your demands away from that? Be realistic. And he refused to be realistic. And I saw the same thing happen in the uh, anti-war movement. In 1964, we basically were able to mobilize about 100,000 people to opposed to the war and march and any kind of demonstration. In 1968, we had, according to those outside of our movement, they estimated that we had reached the support of about 12 million people in the course of those four years. So I've watched small groups of people mobilize, articulate what they want, and be unreasonable in terms of what the politics of the day and the common sense of the day about what was possible, and I've always been impressed by that. Of course, I've then watched the gay and lesbian movement pushing for uh, the right to for marriage, and so many other gays and lesbians were telling them, "Come on, we—if we could just get safety in the streets, if we could get just get uh, not fired for being gay and lesbian, you know, why raise that issue? It's so far out of." the possibility. It turns out that now many states in this country have it, and the right to it was established by the Supreme Court. So, yes, small groups of people can make unbelievable transformations in
1: this society. But it could also have a dark side. I'm thinking, for example, of a small group of people Mm. in Munich in uh, the early 1920s, thugs and gangsters who got together, and that was the beginning of the Nazi movement.
0: Absolutely. What made them a problem was not that they were a small group of people who were fighting for their ideals. It was the content of their ideals that was the problem. And uh, the content of their ideals were horrific. And the content of our ideals have to be understood by people to be coming from uh, a more loving and generous and kind place. But then we have to do a lot to make it it appear and, and understandable to people that what we stand for is something that is not hurtful, but helpful to them.
1: In the current period, there's been a global rise in right-wing regimes from Hungary to India, from Egypt to the Philippines, from Turkey, I dare say the United States. What accounts for that?
0: Well, what accounts for that is that liberal regimes, that is the neoliberal politics of the last several decades have put forward promises about a, a kind of world that they wanted to create that would care for people but actually delivered the opposite. All of those democratic regimes were so tied to the interests of the corporate elite that when having to choose between the needs of the people whom they had voted, who had voted for them versus the needs of the uh, corporate elite, they chose the needs of the corporate elite. And as a result people began to deeply distrust the liberal forces in their countries or the progressive forces in their country. Progressive forces weren't re- really responsible because uh, progressive forces never got into power. They were, at best in some of those countries, the tail of a liberal regime. So, so for example, they, the Clintons could appoint somebody like Robert Reich to be their Secretary of Labor, but never accepted any... Of his more significant suggestions. In other words, the progressives in those regimes were useful for as a public face for neoliberal politics, and the neoliberal politics were ones that simply s- subordinated. Now, they were liberal in the in the sense that the those regimes were in favor of gay rights, uh, women's rights, and cultural issues. But on the substance of the lived experience of most working people in most of these societies, they felt betrayed over and over and over again by the liberals who were elected. And so eventually, they were ready to turn to right-wing forces. Now, those right-wing forces also had a layer of caring about them, from the right-wing churches, that was absent from the liberal churches, and absent from most of the liberal and progressive movements.
1: What about synagogues?
0: Uh, synagogues were uh, the same. Uh, my experience in synagogues before I became a rabbi was, if you went to a liberal, um, to a Reform synagogue, or a conservative synagogue, or a reconstructionist synagogue, where um, you'd hear wonderful sermons, but after the, after the service was over, Nobody talked to you. But when I go to an Orthodox synagogue, I would hear terrible sermons. I, what they stood for that, uh, were often blind support for Israel and everything and um, um, insensitivity about cla- any kind of uh, suffering in the society. They just weren't so interested in that. Um, but after the service was over, people would come up to me and say, uh, do you have a place to eat lunch? Would you like to come to, um, or um, is there anybody in your family who's sick? Because we have a committee that goes and visits the sick, either in the hospital or at your home or their home. Anybody that you need, and at the and when I was earlier, when I was single, uh, people would say, um, "By the way, would you like to meet meet a, a young woman who's also single, or a few few women? We have a number of women in this congregation that you might like to get to know." Um, so, it, uh, these were, you might think that these are trivial issues, but they were actually issues that mattered a lot to people. And this is what I later learned in visiting the um, right-wing churches, that many of the right-wing churches had the same ethos, care for the people who come here, uh, treat them with respect and find out what they need and see if you can offer anything to them around their needs. Um, this was the opposite of my experience in the left. I've never in the left gone to a meeting, a planning meeting for a demonstration or for a campaign or where after the meeting, people come up to you and ask you, is there any way that we could help you, We could be supportive of you? We could care for you. On the contrary, there is no such ethos. Uh, The caring is what brought people into the left. But then in the practice of the left, the caring was about getting past certain kinds of legislation or winning some struggles on the ideal level. And by the way, I'm, I've been 55 years in that left and I feel totally aligned with it still. I am completely supportive of more radical transformation even than many in the left would support. But I never experienced that kind of caring for people. And In big demonstrations that we'd have, there was never a time when people were asked, okay, would you now spend the next half hour talking to people you don't know and getting to know other people and seeing if there's some ways that we can be supportive of each other in your lives outside of this demonstration. Okay, it was always narrowly focused on the content of our programs, but rarely on the content of our hearts. (laughs) But the right was so successful in part because of its willingness to talk to the heart. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to idealize the, the right either. The right was what they were teaching were reactionary ideas, hateful ideas, racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, whatever. A whole bunch, bunch of terrible things and their ideas. But a lot of the people who were attracted to them didn't pay so, so much attention to that. What they paid attention to was, is this a place in a capitalist society where nobody cares about me? I'm in a work situation which is oppressive. or My work is, if it's not oppressive, it's at least minimally, it's mainly about making money for somebody else, not me, but giving me a a narrow salary that barely makes it possible for me to survive economically. But there's no place in the society where there seems to be about caring for me except my family but meanwhile my family is getting more and more insecure because the ethos of the marketplace is of looking out for number 1 and maximize your own self-interest without regard to the consequences of others was becoming internalized into so many people and being brought home into family life
1: and neoliberalism was is characterized by tax cuts basically for the for one for the one percent, uh, deregulation, uh, shrinking and elimination of public services, privatization, uh, and just to give you one example, reading from uh, a New York Times headline, January fourteenth, twenty twenty, West Virginia's working poor squeezed by food stamp cuts. The food stamp cuts by this administration are morally
0: and ethically offensive. Really outrageous, but this wasn't only done by this regime. A cuts in services was done by uh, starting at least by the Clinton administration. Clinton said the days of welfare are over. In other words, he bowed to the right wing rhetoric that was saying all these people who are who are getting support through the welfare system are exploiting that system and getting lots and lots of money for doing no work whatsoever. And so Clinton b- bought that and he he was trying to show that he was just as right-wing as the right-wingers and cut many support programs but the the mo- throwing people uh, out of any kind of support with his changes in the in the welfare system that eventually led Robert Reich to resign from the administration. And some others to resign. Um, so, yeah, what, this is what they were doing. It wasn't just it wasn't just the right wingers that were doing it. It was it was the liberal, the neoliberals. They were saying the best interest of America is served when the best interests of the of the co- corporate elite are served. Only they would not say it that starkly. That was the right wing rhetoric, but that was the liberal wing practice.
1: Well, maybe, you know, we could and get maybe... it, We could get into a discussion about statistics, but there's a, a visible aspect of this, yes. which I don't recall growing up in New York in the 1950s, and that is the thousands and thousands of people living in the streets, the homeless, yeah, right. and what that represents, yes. and why the political class cannot address that issue.
0: Definitely none of the most progressive people running for president in the United States in 2020 are addressing the issue. There's no serious willingness to take up what it would mean to challenge the capitalist order, because the capitalist order, the elites of the capitalist world are not willing to have their wealth taken to reduce significantly, which is what it would take to start a serious program for housing. A serious program for housing would mean, in my estimation, uh, that every, um, every new, for every newborn child, we build a housing place for them, plus build housing for all the un, all those who are unemployed today and and uh, in that situation of homelessness. Uh, a section of the homeless need um, need um, either psychiatric care or a lot of health care um, and that has to be part of the program as well, but there also has to be so much more housing now. The, but all the people who have a stake in in uh, making money out of building housing don't want the government to do that because their profits will go w- way down because no government is going to pay the amount that the marketplace requires uh, for building a new house because the, the, the marketplace is about um, how much more can we charge for this house than what it actually costs to build it. And of course... Um, uh, we could also build um, again the kind of housing um, housing that was built after the Second World War for returning b- veterans. Only this time, we'd have to build it in ways that were sustainable, rather than in uh, really um, uncomfortable and yucky places that um, that people tried to get out of as soon as they could.
1: There was a Brazilian Catholic uh, Archbishop. His name was uh, Dom Haldar Camara. He said, when I feed the poor, I'm called a saint. But when uh, when I ask why there is poverty, I'm called a communist.
0: Exactly. But, you know, at this stage of the global economy, we need to think about eliminating poverty, not just in the United States. So one of the programs in uh, my book, Revolutionary Love, is a proposal for a global Marshall Plan or I'm now calling it also Global Generosity Plan, because the younger people today don't know what the Marshall Plan was. And the Marshall Plan had its problems, because it was aimed primarily at stemming the growth of, of uh, communism in Europe. And so it, it didn't come only from a generous place. It was perceived as a self-interested uh, a program on the part of the United States by many of those who supported it. I argue we need a new bottom line in the society in which love, kindness, caring for others, caring for and caring for the planet are the new bottom line. And uh, in that, I, I say, okay, that has to be not just for us as Americans, it has to be for the people of the world. Because if we want to really protect the planet from environmental destruction, then we've got to, deal with the fact that some of that environmental destruction is happening because people are cutting down the rainforests and, in other ways, polluting the earth in order to be able to, to feed their children and deal with the fact that even today, more than a billion people live on less than a dollar a day. And the rates of people dying from malnutrition or diseases related to malnutrition is extremely high. So we have to deal with that if we want to save the environment. We've got to end the extremes of poverty. And to do that, we need a new global generosity plan or a new global Marshall plan. But the difference between the Marshall plan and the generosity plan is one that it has to flow not solely from self-interest. It has to flow from our genuinely seeing ourselves as one with all the people of the planet. And that consciousness is central to being able to actually deal with the environmental crisis.
1: Well, speaking of the environmental crisis, uh, we have a regime in Washington which abandoned the Paris Climate Accords, as well as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, widely known as the Iran deal. Talk about the significance of uh, those two actions.
0: They're terrible moves that might easily lead to a war with uh, Iran, or at least Iran developing uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and uh, they show that there's no, no real seriousness from the United States in dealing with the environmental crisis. But again, uh, as in other uh, aspects of what the um, the liberals and government have done, the 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 climate agreements that uh, that are now being discarded were very limited. They did not really get to the heart of what is um, what is causing the of a climate crisis. Um, in in my book, Revolutionary Love, I quote the, um, a statement that was written by 17,000 climate scientists, okay, in which they say, amongst the things that have to happen is that we have to give up on the notion that growth of our economy is the way to measure whether we're successful or not. The, act, uh, the actual truth is we need to stop the growth because we're ex- we're extracting more and more from the earth as though it were a bottomless um, cookie jar, with endless amounts of cookies in there. But actually, that's not the earth. The earth has a limit on its resources, and we are using them up so that uh, the next few generations are going to have very much, very fewer. Uh, resources available to them, and meanwhile, what are we doing it for? We're doing it to produce more and more plastic goods, or plastic containers, or other things that are polluting the the oceans. We are doing it to um, to build things that are not needed for for many many human beings on the, on the, uh, in the United States. So then they have to engage in um, endless amounts of advertising, poisoning our heads, so that we can believe that we need a new iPhone every 3 years or 4 years and a new computer every 3 or 4 years and a new uh, car every 3 or 4 years and a new and so many so much that then has to be thrown away as junk and um that and the junk is is spilling over uh, not no longer containable um so we're then ruining parts of the earth to fill it with junk that are garbage from things that we never needed to consume in the first place. So all of these are parts of why that agreement was very minimal and didn't really begin to do what needed to be done, of which the step number one is to ban all extraction of oil and gas from the ground. We need to set a date for that, not 2050, but 2030 or 40. And we need to take the steps to make it possible for people to still have electricity and home heating. And the, But there are ways to get that if we were to seriously invest in uh, alternative forms of energy. But that means there's going to be a lot of changes in people's lives if we're to try to try to deal with alternative forms of energy and uh, reducing the the number of automobiles and increasing dramatically public transportation. All of these things are not taken adequately, taken seriously enough by the climate agreements that we're now outraged are being suspended by the Trump administration. But let's not forget that where we were before the Trump administration was no picnic, no great place. It was a, a very bad place in regard to taking seriously. Obama... Was on the one hand saying, "Okay, this area is not going to be drilled in," but then he'd go to another area and say, "Oh, this is open, open to drilling, or you know, come here." And so it was, it was. Uh, a very mixed picture of what they were uh, what they were doing.
1: Yeah, the UN uh, Intergo- intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC has identified 2030 as a critical year if global warming is not uh, reversed by then. They're talking, you know, words like irreparable damage will ensue. Yeah. So the warning, the re- the studies have been done, the reports are out there. There's no Question about the science, but the it seems to me that the political class and the media uh, are not uh, sufficiently uh, treating the issue with the urgency it it demands
0: the, totally right, and let me just give you one example of that every day on uh, on the, the media, not only in the uh, commercial media but even on nPR the national public radio and so forth um, in the new, when the news is brought on you get a report of uh, how the how the economy is doing from wall street right how is wall street doing today stocks up down whatever that there should be a daily report on the environment and the and the how the environment is doing today what's happened today to either alleviate the suffering the 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 destruction of the environment or accelerating it and that should be just in in front of people daily in the newspapers and in the uh, radio and television and just something that everybody hears every day, Uh, that's not happening. And so, yes, it seems like that's a side issue when actually it's the survival issue of the human race.
1: You're listening to Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics and the Left, part two of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program and for Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. In Charlottesville in 2017, torch-bearing marchers chanted, Jews will not replace us, and also the Nazi slogan, Blood and Soil, und Boden. Has the Trump presidency enabled uh, this kind of uh, activity to surface?
0: Yes, it has. The anti-Semitism that, that was manifested there and that has been manifested more recently in uh, people going into synagogues and killing, killing people in the synagogues in Pittsburgh, in yeah. in Pittsburgh and in Southern California, and in the last uh, and mo- most recently in upstate New York, uh, where they came out with, with guns, but with, the guy came with a. Um, it was a
1: Hanukkah celebration. Hanukkah
0: celebration in the rabbi's home, and comes in with a long knife and stabs to death four people and wounds several others.
1: There's is, an attack in Jersey City on a kosher market.
0: There are several people were wounded, and I think one or two were killed. Yeah, so this is happening. Now, I also want to say that for a very long time, the liberal and progressive movements did not consider Jews to be a, a, one of the groups that was suffering from this society here. That is, the cause, they have a narrow vision Uh, Our movements have had a narrow vision of what oppression is that has largely been shaped by a materialist, reductionist view of the world that says that the real oppression is when you don't have enough money. I am proud to have been part of those movements because it definitely is a significant part of the suffering of people when they don't have enough, enough money to live on. But much of my book, Revolutionary Love, is about pointing out the other spheres of the psychological and spiritual dimensions of human suffering that the left has largely ignored and to its detriment. And a lot of what what I discovered in the work that I was doing as a psychotherapist with middle-income working people and in the re- research that I led was that those issues were just as important. Now, so in the sphere of those issues... Jews have been a traumatized people. For at least the last 2,000 years, Jews have been the number one demeaned other in Europe. And it was only when when they came to the United States, the majority of them tr- tracing their families from 1880 on, who came here, they found that they weren't the deme- major demeaned other. But that didn't mean we weren't a minor <laughs> demeaned other. We were, a dem- uh, we were always a demeaned other here, Really, until the mid, until the Second World War. Then, when it turned out that the Second World War had as anti-Semitism as one of its major thrusts and murdering Jews, uh, so that actually by 1945, one out of every three Jews alive in 1940 had been murdered in, by 1945. That made anti-Semitism against Americanism. Okay, so Americans said don't talk about it, we don't want to hear about it. But what did not happen in this country was what did happen in relationship to racism, sexism, and homophobia. In those three years, liberals and left people led the struggles to teach people in this society what was wrong about those forms of of oppression. And to a large extent, today, Tens of millions of Americans know what 's wrong with them, not all Americans to be sure, but a very large number of Americans do. But when it comes to anti Semitism, there never was any such uh, uh, such focus because uh, so the suffering that Jews had had, the trauma that Jews have lived with after the holocaust but that it had been generated by two thousand years of Christian oppression and Christian privilege against uh, jews that sort of went underground, but it didn't disappear. So for example, when I was in school in the sixth grade and the teacher says, okay, draw something for the holidays. It was a school where I was the only Jewish kid. So I didn't know what to draw because they were all drawing Christmas trees um, to put on the windows. So the teacher said, well, why don't you try to put a menorah on the window for Hanukkah? So I started to do that and some kid comes in up to me and uh, uh, socks me on the eye. And why? He says, because you killed Christ. Okay. Um, so that's in that was in the uh, 1950s in, in the United States. So although officially it was not acceptable, the culture of anti-Semitism was so deep in Western cultures, including the United States, and it was never confronted, never talked about. The teachings of hatred against Jews are rooted in some of the gospel stories about the killing of Jesus, of the crucifixion of Jesus. So the Christian church would have had to make major transformations in, uh, in uh, uh, either explaining that or in argu- showing that it was not true. And even when after the Pope in 1963 decided to take it out of the liturgy, the part of the Good Friday liturgy that talked about the pernicious Jews... That did, the, church, the Catholic Church never went back to its local priests and said to, say to them, now you've got to teach about the history of anti-Semitism and our role as Catholics in having uh, supported that and being uh, vanguard of uh, anti-Semitism. And similarly, in, uh, in, the Christ- in the Protestant world, there was never any significant attempt to take responsibility for anti-Semitism and explain it and explain what was wrong with it. So then anti-Semitism emerges as yet another one of the forms of demeaning others um, that has now gotten legitimation in part through um, uh, Trump's famous statement after Charlottesville that says, oh, well, there are good people on both sides. That is, the fascists and anti-Semites on the one side and the anti-fascists who came to protest against them on the other side. So that gave a tremendous legitimation for anti-Semites to come out of their closets and and be proudly supportive of, of um, the white nationalism that they had previously been building but had not had very much publicity
1: for Now, you'll recall that uh, speaking to an American Jewish group, Trump referred to Benjamin Netanyahu as your prime minister. Mm -hmm. And then he also called Jewish Democrats who criticized Israeli policies as, quote, disloyal to Israel, unquote. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of bizarre. You know, he he happens to have a son-in-law who's an Orthodox Jew, as well as and obviously his daughter, converted,
0: I find it troubling and uh, and upsetting that he goes to to tell us that really it's it's the belief that you're you're not really Americans you really have loyalty to Israel. Um and to which the response of lots of uh Jews privately is we better start making sure that Israel is safe because this place is not going to be safe anymore, right? And um but but there's a se- a section of the Jewish world that never believed that we're going to be safe. And that's a result of the traumas of our history, because the truth of the matter is, we never have been safe. We've been had uh, short moments, 50 years, 100 years in Spain. We had 300 years before 1492, when the king of and queen of Spain ordered that all Jews leave. Up till then, we called this our golden age in Spain. A few years later, all Jews expelled from Portugal. Before that, all Jews in, in the 1200s had been expelled from England. In the 1300s, they had been expelled from France. So, I mean, we've had a lot of experience of insecurity. So I, I want to have a little bit of compassion for Jews for feeling scared, even though I think it's counterproductive and doesn't need to happen. But it's a legacy that carries. So there's been always a section of the Jewish people who said, we support Israel no matter what it does. And you, Rabbi Lerner are a fraud. You're you're a traitor to Israel. You don't believe in Israel, when actually I want Israel to be a strong and successful society. And I know that the only way that can happen is with a reconciliation of the heart with the Palestinian people, because there is never going to be any safety for Israel if it depends on the United States, with nutcases like Trump elected, and worse yet to come, possibly. I want to see him defeated. But I just want to say that if he's defeated by somebody who is another weak-kneed liberal, we're still in trouble.
1: The FBI report in 2018 covering that year uh, on religious-based hate crimes has uh, Jews being targeted number one, uh, almost 58%. You know the second group? Um, Tell me. Muslims. Oh, yeah. Well, Islamophobia. Uh, yeah,
0: exactly, yes. I've tried to be... In the vanguard of those in the Jewish world who are putting out clear statements of unequivocal support for Muslims in in this country. And I believe that both our religious traditions and our security require that we stand with every group that is being targeted because it's all a slippery slope to each other. I was invited to speak at Muhammad Ali's funeral. Muhammad Ali uh, knew he was dying for many years before he had Parkinson's disease, and he chose me to be one of the speakers at his funeral. We had been friends in the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s when we had met in uh, leadership positions of the anti-war movement. We hung out together, friendly, very friendly. But then after the war was over, we didn't have very much contact until 1994, when, uh, 95, when... Cornell West and I um, put out a book called Jews and Blacks. Let the healing begin. And then I got a, out of the out of the blue. I got a letter from from Muhammad Ali saying, um, "Hey, I love what you're doing, Michael. And uh, you know, you're keeping up with the, all the things that we believed in. Uh, you're terrific." And no return address. So I I I didn't know what to make of that. I, I I wondered if it was real or not real. But I I put it in the back of my mind. Forgot about it. A week before his funeral, his family lawyer calls and says, by the way, seven years ago, he put you as a key person to speak at at the funeral. So I went to the funeral. And um, unlike most of the other speakers who were not really reaching to the political issues of the day, I got up and said, we in the Jewish world are here to tell you that we will not let happen to you what happened to us we in the Jewish world will stand unequivocally with you, and we will fight against every form of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and we are with you in real ways. And then I went on, and uh, it was a rather, what people later called an incendiary speech, Uh, although others in the media said it brought down the house, because in the seven minutes that I had, The speech was interrupted four times by standing ovations by people there. So, yes, I feel very connected with the struggle against Islamophobia and believe that it's critical for everybody to stand up when it opens its face. Trump has been against Muslims in every possible way, including the Muslim ban that he tried to put in place at the beginning and in all of his rhetoric. So Islamophobia is real and needs to be combated and definitely... Uh, we in the liberal progressive Jewish world need to be standing up against it and are doing that.
1: Let's talk about Israel-Palestine. The occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem is in its 53rd year. Settlement, colony expansion continues apace. There may be as many as 600,000 settlers on land captured by Israel in the 1967 war. The siege of Gaza is ongoing, along with sporadic fighting. Israeli-only roads slice and dice the West Bank, making a contiguous and viable Palestinian state dubious. Is Israel moving toward apartheid?
0: In the current moment, it looks to me like Israel is galloping towards apartheid um, and unconcerned about it from... The standpoint of the elections that are taking place now and the likely outcome, whoever of the two leading candidates, whether it's Gantz or whether it's Netanyahu, uh, have racist ideas about who the Palestinian people are and what they deserve. So, um, so Israel is in a a terrible, um, a terrible situation. On the other hand, um, um, you know King Solomon. Um, asked his wise people to come up with a slogan he could put on his ring that would um, always be true. And none of his advisors could come up with it. And he finally came up with it himself. And what he put on his ring was this, the words, "Gamze Yavor, this too will pass. Okay, that was always, that, that's the one slogan that was always true. So I worry very much about Israel's direction right now and refuse to call it a Jewish state. I call it a state with a lot of Jews, okay? A Jewish state would be a Jew state that in some way embodies the highest principles of our Torah. And the most frequently repeated injunction in our Torah, the only one that's been repeated 36 times in various forms, is when you get into your land, do not oppress the stranger. Remember that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Variants of that, of care for the other, of care for the the word was gair in hebrew and it means both stranger and other the other so israel is totally violating that central teaching of the jewish people and so it's not a jewish state but it is a state with a lot of jews in it and it's doing horrible things to the palestinian people no it's not as bad as what's happening for um for muslims in china today or what's happening for Muslims in parts of India today. It's not as bad. It's not the worst country in the world. It's not as bad as what the United States is doing around the world and overthrowing regimes. And there are a lot of other bad actors. But as a Jew, I feel outraged at what Israel is doing towards the Palestinian people and feel they no longer deserve to call themselves a Jewish state. In fact, they are besmirching the identity of Judaism and making it hard for younger Jews who have any kind of ethical consciousness to identify with Israel in any way, and not just Israel, but to feel like, okay, if that's what Judaism is, I want no part of it. So uh, it's very, very hard to get younger people involved in their Jewish identity unless it is in some form of spiritual identity that doesn't talk about politics that rules out politics and in that way saves themselves from having to deal with the outrage of what is being done in the name of the Jewish people in Israel. Now, having said that, I just want to add one other thing. I am not for a two-state solution. I am for a democratization of Israel, which means that uh, the movement in Israel, left movement, should now be asking for one person, one vote in Israel for every person under rule by Israel. So that includes everybody in the West Bank and in Gaza. But I'm for that, thinking that when, when that movement becomes more successful, that the right wing in Israel will become so scared of that turning out to be the case, and Israel becoming a democratic society with a majority of Arabs in some uh, not-too-far-distant future, that they will then seek a two-state solution. And I'm in for a two-state solution only in the context of the craziness that's going on in the world right now. But actually, in the longer run, I'm in favor of a no-state solution, not just for Israel-Palestine, but for the world. I believe that states need to be reconfigured as environmental districts and that we have to overcome nationalism in all its destructive forms. And that means ending statehood and instead creating a new replacement for it. Environmental districts that are created, that have uh, some of the powers of states, but that work with each other. Uh, All the environmental districts working with each other to develop an economy and plans for an economy each year that will work for the benefit of all the people on the planet. The way I see Judaism leading me is towards no nationalism, no state, No state power of any sort. And um, I look forward to that day coming soon. And I believe it will come, unfortunately, most likely, as a result of the failure of the states to stop the environmental crisis so that it will become so deep that people are then at a point 30, 40, or 50 years from now in which they're willing to say, these state forms have led us to this craziness, And the destruction of our life support system, if we can ever save ourselves so that life on the planet can be saved, we're not going to recreate states. We need to create environmental districts that are cooperating with each other all around the world to maintain the planet with whatever of the life support system has survived.
1: Speaking of the climate chaos, climate crisis, do you see it through a spiritual lens?
0: Well, both uh, spiritual and political, yes. I see it through a spiritual lens in the sense that uh, this is something that was predicted long ago in the Torah. And it's in our prayer book, uh, in the Jewish prayer book. It says, it comes come to pass if you uh, live in accordance with the ethical principles of the world, the ethical principles that we've taught you in this Torah, and build a, a society based on that, then the world will do well. But If you don't create that kind of a society, if you create a world in which people are just craving for power for themselves and looking out for themselves and not taking care of each other and not building institutions that support that, then the world will not work. The sun won't shine, the rain won't fall, the earth won't give forth its produce, and you and all of your people and maybe all of the people of the earth will be destroyed and life will be destroyed on this planet. You say, well, that's from 3,000 years ago. But when you're looking at the history of the world, 3,000 years is nothing. This is a tiny little period of history in which teachings of our tradition told us that if we didn't get it together to live in accordance with an ethical lifestyle and an ethical reality in our daily lives, I under-translate that as You've got to overcome global capitalism. It's only the latest form and the most effective form of class and patriarchal domination. But it's nevertheless a form of domination that has led to the destruction of the planet. And this is exactly what our teachers taught us. So yes, this is a huge spiritual crisis. And the only way we'll get out of it is with a new spiritual consciousness that says we need a new bottom line. And that new bottom line is that every institution, corporation and government policy and our health care system and our cultural systems and our education system should all be judged efficient, rational and productive to the extent that they maximize people's capacity to be loving and caring, kind and generous, ethically and environmentally sensitive and responsible, able to treat other human beings as embodiments of the sacred and not simply as you know, vehicles that can satisfy our needs and able to look at planet Earth but also the whole universe with a sense of awe and wonder rather than with a sense that, oh, we can turn this into a commodity and sell it. So capitalism is a spiritual disaster for this world. It has it led more and more people to internalize its values. And uh, as a result, people are not able to stand together. In other words, it's the I thinking, what's in it for me? And we have failed to build, and this is what central goal that the left has to take up, to build a we consciousness, to help people understand that thinking only in terms of I is a guarantee that your personal interest will be destroyed because of the environmental crisis that the planet is facing.
1: Well, a lot of young people are engaged in fighting the climate crisis. Greta Thunberg of Sweden being the most famous, obviously, Mm. Time Magazine's Person of the Year. There are organizations like Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement that have just mushroomed out of nowhere and have, you know, demonstrated their strength and their commitment to reversing climate degradation. You've laid out some pretty grim scenarios here but what gives you hope?
0: Well, what gives me hope, number one, is the fact that those young people are there and that they are responding to the crisis. I won't have real hope until I see emerging in those movements and in all of the rest of the liberal and progressive movements an attempt to focus on love and caring and kindness and generosity. Because for a significant section of the people of this country, their opposition to the left comes not from agreeing with Trump on the substantive issues. Every poll that you see taken, you see 70% of the population in favor of many of the liberal programs and progressive programs that are being put forward. But they don't vote that way and they don't stand that way for one reason, because they feel that the left doesn't like them, that the left disrespects them, that the left demeans them that the left thinks that they are all racist, sexist, homophobic, or stupid. And the stupid part is very important because so many people have internalized a sense of themselves as failures in some way or other. The notion of living in a meritocracy in which you can make it if you really try has gotten them to the point of feeling like, well, then the reason why I didn't make it is because something wrong with me. And then along comes the left and makes them feel worse by saying yeah you know what you're stupid that message so hurts people that they are say i want to go to a place where i feel like people care about me and not simply want my vote but meanwhile think that i'm a stupid person and the the hub of that the the linchpin of that is the left's attitude towards religion and spirituality in which religiophobia is almost universal in major parts of the left. And yet, in the rest of the society, including many people who want to be with us, the feeling that we give them is that if you're religious or you're spiritual, then you are probably at a lower level of intellectual and spiritual and psychological development than we are. So, if you can get over your religious fantasies, then you can be like us. But until then, well, we hope you'll evolve to us until then we want your vote. but basically we think that your beliefs are crazy and stupid and have no substance.
1: Do you make a d- distinction between spiritual and religious?
0: Yeah, because spiritual means attending to the the world with awe and wonder and seeing other human beings through the framework of the, the miraculous nature. Religion is a was built on that uh, initial awe and wonder but it has formalized it in ways that are often um, uh, stultifying and it's hard sometimes to get out of the religion their spiritual content. Nevertheless, um, there's a value in religious institutions, namely that at least some of them provide a a regular way to get into um, the experience of awe and wonder at the universe and, and the miraculous nature of human life. Whereas in the liberal and progressive world, for example, it's very rare to be encouraged to think in those kinds of terms, and so um, so we look at each other a lot from a uh, standpoint of what we can get from you. Will you be Will you be in my movement with me? Will you? Will it's you...
1: transactional.
0: It's it's right. It's it's utilitarian. Um, it's uh, what can what can I get from you? In other words, the the left. Has absorbed the logic of capitalism, and um, in many ways it is uh, crippled by that and in some ways, the religious world is an, uh, is an alternative to to it in that it encourages a different kind of thinking. now, the leadership of much of the religious world is deeply into the wrong kind of thinking, and most of the you know and many of the and certainly uh in the uh, religious right. There are all kinds of distortions, but there's nevertheless some elements that make people feel like, okay, they care for me here. There's something good here. And they address the question of higher meaning and purpose to life. So many people who are stuck in jobs that are without any capacity to give you a sense of meaning in life. And so frustrating because you know that what you're doing is not something that is even good for the environment or good for anybody. It's good only for the people who own these corporations and will uh, turn things into products that they can sell, but they're not something that are needed. So many people feel that way, are desperate for some sense of meaning and purpose. But when you ask people on the left about meaning and purpose, a higher meaning and purpose, they say, oh, You must be one of those religious nuts that, uh, you know, we know about you, religious nuts. You're the racist, sexist, homophobes and xenophobes. So a lot of very good people turn to the right to find people who can talk about some higher meaning to life. The liberal world is very fearful of that, believes that it's a slippery slope to religion and religion is a slippery slope towards racism, sexism, homophobia and xenophobia. Well, that's not true, there's a section of religious world that is crusading against all that. After all, Martin Luther King Jr. was not a secular humanist. He was a religious Christian, and he led a movement, a beautiful movement against violence and against hatred of all sorts. We need that kind of movement in the left, and we don't have it. And so. We at Tikkun have been trying to encourage that development. We've created an organization called the Network of Spiritual Progressives. Now we're changing its name to, to focus on, to call it a um, the Love and Justice Movement. But to put the love part as a central part of what the liberal and progressive forces is about is the strategy that could possibly make us begin to win again.
1: And Tikkun in Hebrew means? to
0: heal, repair, and transform the world.
1: Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That was Michael Lerner on Faith, Politics, and the Left, part two of a special two-part program. I talked with him in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado in mid-January 2020. Michael Lerner, editor of Tikkun Magazine, is a leading voice for peace, justice, and spiritual renewal. He's the author of Revolutionary Love. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 34th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. Each week, we feature such progressive voices as Kianga Yamata-Taylor, Matt Taibbi, Noam Chomsky, and Winona LaDuke. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Michael Lerner on faith, politics, and the left. And for Rabbi Lerner's book, Revolutionary Love, just call us at one 800 Again, that number is one 800 444 you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Richie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Hello.
0: Hello. What is it? CJSW. This is CrispinGlover.com. You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Thank you. Thank you. One more. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Good afternoon.
0: Welcome to Phonosynthesis. My name is Andy. You're tuned in to CJSW 90.9 FM.